0: Amen. Thank you, Josiah. Thank you, thank you. Three Waters. Where's the outhouse? Oh, thank you. It's great to be back. It's amazing to be back. Yeah, I wasn't ex- expecting that little video right there. I've got to uh, prep myself. I, I did have a cool little picture of the two girls side by side I was going to show you. Paisley with her custom-made little mask that John made for her because he has got to wear that for a while. As she's protecting her immune system, as her body's adjusting to a new liver. But uh, things are going really good there. So we're thankful. And again, it the, from the time of going in and how everything's gone, there the word from the medical side, they've used the word miraculous. And that's only because you guys have been part of the prayer. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Really do appreciate it. But it's good to be home. I'm still adjusting a little uh sleep-wise, so last night I didn't expect to wake up at 4 o'clock staring at the walls. So uh, I trust everything will connect, amen? But let's pray about that right now so that it does. Thank you, Lord. God, we praise you for uh, what you're doing in the earth and what you're doing in this church family, what you're doing in our families. And thank you for, we would just say, miraculous. I just thank you that people would experience the miraculous. They'd be seeing breakthrough and connections and uh, revelation, visitations, all that just brings richness to life. We, We thank you for it. You are our God. You are our Father. And we magnify you this morning. Thank you for being a Heavenly Father that cares for us and takes care of us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. That we can say with a confidence that we can know God. We can walk with God. We can fellowship with God. What an amazing privilege. Thank you for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in this room that people would hear you in their own language today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless. So, I came from Rome this week. And um, we are in the process and almost finishing up Presenting a paper. And so, on this side, there is an office called the, uh, El, no, El Centro Unión is another place. This is the um, the Pontifical Council for Christian Unity is somewhere right in here. And um, so, a group of us have been meeting there. Oh, my wife said I should show you my bedroom because people think it's all glamorous and glorious to travel, but it really isn't. So, they're... they're <laughs> There's my room, and there was something like you feel like you're a monk when you're staying there, uh, but there's no television, and uh, lots of <laughs> contemplation time, and it's really a bad mattress. Uh, the air conditioning works, but it'll just cool it off to 24 degrees, which is somewhere around high 70s, so uh, yeah, anyway, it's not really suffering for Jesus. The food's good, but just so you know, it's not the Hyatt, right? Um, and uh, so we've been working together on this paper since... Two th- I've been involved since 2003, and we presented it. It's in its last form, but I just wanted to show you that what it's all about is in the family tree of things, this is, this is the uh, early church. This would be like you read about in the book of Acts, and then out of there, the Roman Catholic Church formed... And then this represents 1,500 years from here to here. So this is a long time. Meanwhile, these guys kind of formed out of the main churches, the first five patriarchal churches formed. And and when you hear about Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, that's these guys from here. Then you heard about Martin Luther and the Reformation. So Martin Luther gets his revelation. He breaks off from the Catholic Church with a protest, and starts the Reformation, after which all of these churches start branching off for all kinds of different reasons. And on this side, but we go, our family tree looks like this. It's actually through the Anglican Church, and then we're, we're more over on the Methodist side, and then the Holiness Churches, and then Azusa Revival breaks out. So you get the Pentecostal Churches, the Assemblies of God, Church of God of Cleveland, church of christ there's four square so here's the classical pentecostal churches that came out of azusa and then there's now the the, you know they they attribute like calvary chapel then vineyard and then we kind of go off the chart we'd be down here but (laughs) but this (laughs) there's a reason we're off the chart but this whole stream right through here this is kind of the church plant charismatic movement that came from the assemblies and here. But of course the charismatic movement, not really a reform, it didn't affect. It affected the Baptists, it affected some of the Orthodox, definitely in the Roman Catholic, to the Anglican Church, when the Holy Spirit began to move, and they began to uh, experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, tongues, interpretation of tongues. But then the whole charismatic church movement started. And so we are explaining down here, <laughs> what New Charismatic Churches are to these guys up here. And there, there's a lot that's happened in between, amen? And, and almost every one of these little reasons is because somebody, there's something either God restored or they got a revelation or a rebellion. But there's, there's reasons. And, it, and the World Council of Churches estimates that in this grouping of churches, there's actually 2,200 little splinters. So there's a lots of people with lots of opinions for lots of reasons in this thing called the body of Christ, Amen. But we're trying to explain this phenomena to these guys up here. And it's been, it's been uh, really fun. It's been really challenging. Their conclusion, as would be ours, we have got a lot more in common than we do not in common, which is absolutely amazing. And uh, it's just been a super, super rich time of fellowship. Uh, one thing we got to experience, it's sort of wrapping up in a sense. But speaking of, well, let's go back to the chart. So... When this happened, when Luther broke off from the Roman Catholic Church, so that's been a little over 500 years ago, they've been working on that <laughs> more intently for the last 50 years. And this is uh, the Pope Francis with the lead of the Lutheran Church, Com- from conflict to communion, they've reconciled what is called the Protestant you know, issues, and they've signed off on those. And so that they're at this massive high level in the church body. There's this canoe connection and new fellowship. And this document was hanging on the walls of the building that I was in. But this is a uh, the joint declaration of the doctrine of justification. It might not mean much to you. But it's actually, if you think about it, it took 50 years. 50 years of meeting to come up with three statements. <laughs> Things move slow in that world. <laughs> but... Uh, Three, year, or three, three statements, 50 years to work out a way so that they could come back together for common communion. So think about Jesus' job. He's trying, to, he's trying to reconcile this, right? How many know it takes some being intentional? How, how many know you've got to look past some of your differences and, and kind of center up on Christ for that to happen? But you know what is going to happen? Because he predicted it in his prayer, and it was the Lord's burden that that would take place. But it was pretty amazing to look at this document and see the the live signatures on it and to realize that they were actually able to pull together something that was so split and so divided. And my hat goes off to guys who give their life to that, and ladies who give their life to that. They're just working on the ways of historically how to bring the church back into connection. And uh, I can say, you know, being in the middle of that, not only is sometimes it's overwhelming, but it's most of the time way out of my league in terms of theology and terminology. And I'm, I'm clearly there as a practitioner. And I'm there just totally relying on the presence of God and the spirit of God. And uh, I can just humbly say that he uses me every time in some specific things that's uh, rewarding afterwards, and it makes me feel like God is really God, and the Holy Spirit 's really the Holy Spirit, and that it, this isn 't going to be an issue really about theology that actually unites things together that it 's going to be a working of the Spirit of God because it won 't be my might it won 't be by power but by his spirit, says the Lord that he 'll bring his capstone on this the whole thing and so but but in the middle of that you 're uh, and again in my little monastic bedroom. Um, and contemplating and, uh, you know, you, you work through after all of the complexities of what makes a movement a movement, what makes a people a people. And I, I was sitting there in the, the there's, let's see, uh, seven of us that were meeting in the um, pontifical council. And that was on a Monday. And on the, the prior Sunday, I had spoke at the Quipper's Church in Rome and then an Acts church that afternoon, and they're both similar expression. They got the stage, the lights, the sound, the pounding music, and I had taken a little video of the setup, and when I was sitting with those guys, he said, so where were you? And I said, oh, I spoke at a a church, one of the churches in our movement, and they go here in Rome, and yeah, and I explained it to them. And, And so I actually showed that little video clip of the setup of the pounding music, and they had they had a graphic going, and it was like a psychedelic spiral with music and words coming off of it. And they were playing with the light set up, so the lights are flashing. And music, <laughs> you should have seen Bishop Farrell's face. <laughs> there's no grid. I'm just telling you. There's there's no grid. There's no and but he was very complimentary. He goes, "Well, that sounds nice." You know, it was like they did their best to try to appreciate that. We actually have an expression that looks way different. It's it's way in a different part of the food chain, and uh, but at the same time, looking for commonalities. Like what would draw somebody to a basilica, and what would draw somebody to a performing arts center, right? I mean, we aren't we all just looking for Jesus? And so it was. It set me like thinking about the whole idea of the Lord and walking with the Lord and priorities and. Just rethinking faith and rethinking Christianity. And I I centered up on the idea of his invitation to take my yoke upon you. So I want to just share about that for a few minutes. And you guys know the offer. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. How many know that sounds good? (laughs) Right? Especially summer. Don't you feel like a little rest, a little, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Great statement, great promise and uh, it's worth looking at. It's worth unpacking. So thinking about yoke and being yoked together, the first thing you do is look at an oxen video, right? Well, we're going to do that. So these are two ox being trained to walk together under a yoke. There's no audio, so just kind of look at it together, kind of uh, commentary-wise. But w- they're training the ox as a team. And in, when you're training an ox as a team, you have the mature ox that's used to this, and you have the new ox that's now being yoked to him. So he's being mentored, in a sense. And one of the important things, is, of course, is they learn to walk together, because their primary goal is to pl- pull a plow, or to move other heavy things together uh, in, in synchronization. And so you watch this guy, because the ox, he's trying to do a straight line up, betwe- up behind him and <laughs> doing his best to try to keep it on track. And now you just see ox, they, use for, they pull rocks out of heavy fields and they use them for, you know, when they're tearing down timber to drag them off. But there's various uses for the ox. But the whole reason why ox can work, whether it's a team of two, four, or eight, is because they learned to how to be yoked together, and I, you know, I didn't realize till you, you saw that one picture. Is there? Here's a guy on a plow, and he's got a blade, and he's trying to cut like a 12 to 18 inch path, and th- his success is totally dependent upon the ox's ability to walk together, right, and to keep pace together. Like I didn't realize that the importance of keeping up, or the importance of one ox leading and the other ox yielding so that the team can work. And then I thought about Jesus offering us his yoke, and I, I had the revelation, I can't. it must be really hard for him to be yoked to me, <laughs> right? Oh, don't laugh so loud. <laughs> but think about that. How often do you pull, right? Yeah, always. How often do you just commit to a straight path? And, and to finish a job, right? Like that when we're, we're yoked together and there's a purpose and you're, we're supposed to you know, accomplish something together. And how often am I pulling? How often am I falling back? And you know what happens when the yoke gets out of balance? When one pulls back, it puts pressure points on the other ox. And so the, the tendency obviously is to lean in, but the, the trained ox... We'll hold the course and make the other ox catch up with him and put him back on course. But he'll take the pain for the sake of the other ox catching up and being trained. Think about how true that is with the Lord. How, much, how, much he, how, how many times do we put pressure on his pressure points? I mean, I don't know if that's good theology or not, but I can work through the picture. Amen? That, uh, that as we're walking together, that it's about keeping up. It's about staying in pace with him. But he makes some promises about the yoke that he offers us. So when he says, take my yoke upon you, the message version says, are you tired, worn out, <laughs> burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Look, at, here's the offer. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. I love this sentence. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know about you. Amen? I'm looking for that. Uh, uh, That invitation to walk with him, but to learn how to walk with him. To work with him, to learn how to co-labor. But it comes by watching how he does it. And there is something, the unforced rhythm, that's really not in the Greek, but it's just the the guys who wrote the message put that in there. I like it. The unforced rhythms of grace. In other words, grace isn't being forced. The Grace is being realized, right? Grace is being lived out. And a promise of I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You know, that when he asked that question, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? It's interesting that in the same passage of scripture, you find this saying in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, same time he's talking about his yoke, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these, these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. So this offer is to not to the wise and prudent. It's offered to the babes or the humble, is one translation would put it. And, and here, this, this, is, this lays it out. This is sort of in our face right here when we're talking about God's yoke and the things that are being offered and the things that aren't being offered to the wise and to the prudent. Here is the Greek on what those two words equal. Skill experts skilled in letters cultivated learned of the greek philosophers and orators of jewish theologians and of christian teachers so when when jesus says this is what i'm this is being offered to the kingdom is being hid from those who are oriented this way or the prudent who have mentally put it all together well, those are having understanding the wise the learned the kingdom's being hidden from the wise and the prudent and being revealed to the babes who aren't relying on their intelligence, that aren't relying on their theology, aren't relying on their philosophy, or aren't relying on their intelligence, don't have a, a, an, a, a putting out a, a, you know, an air about them that they've got it all mentally together. Jesus said it's the other people that these things are being offered to. Amen? Nobody cheered. <laughs> I like that. I mean, because I, I can tell you the pressure of being in those realms and how you wrestle with significance. I mean, that's really at the root of most people. Most of us, we wrestle with significance. We wrestle with legitimacy. We really do. And and especially, you know, systems get developed to, to put approval on things. Systems get developed so that you can have a formal... Accreditation, so you can have a formal graduation certificate, so you can have a a formal uh, doctorate, so you can have a formal graduation diploma. That systems get developed because every human manifests this need for somebody to put their seal of approval on them. For somebody to declare that we're legitimate in what we're feeling, sensing, saying, and what we're doing. And so there's an intimidation factor, and there's this factor of wanting to conform for the sake of of being endorsed. Right? And it drives people for for certain things. Now, accomplishment and education, that's all great until you begin to trust and rely on it. Because there's something that will begin to happen, a substitution for his yoke for another yoke that we're going to talk about. But when he says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, we also know accurately from Scripture that though the root word or the root thought comes from being yoked together like an ox, that in the rabbinical realm of rabbis and teachers at the time of Israel, the word yoke had a different meaning. The word yoke had to do with how a particular rabbi interprets the Scriptures and teaches his followers how to live. That was called his yoke. When he would say, this is my yoke, this is my revelation, my interpretation primarily of the law. The book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy is the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This is my interpretation. This is how I live out those scriptures. Come follow me. And take my yoke, my philosophy, my theology, my understanding, and that's how the, uh, the religious world was organized at that time. Young men would gather two rabbis and be accepted in the company of a particular rabbi, and they would learn the scriptures and to live out life. But you only, at a certain age, I think it was like five years old, if you didn't show the right aptitude, you never got to follow the rabbi. You went back home, and you became part of the family business, whatever that was, fishing, carpentry, agriculture. But if you showed a certain aptitude for the scriptures and memorization and obedience and attentiveness and alertness, if you had the pedigree, then the, the... uh, as you grew up, I think it's like age 13 to 15, then you're invited to actually follow the rabbi. And so then you begin to take his yoke. And it's interesting that the rabbi not only interprets, but this concept of building fences is a fascinating concept, especially with the, uh, with what we're talking about. Because when a rabbi would interpret scripture, and we'll just read this, the instruction regarding hach, walking one's faith, is often described as building fences. An example of Adam and Eve. Adam received the word from God and it was do not eat. And he built a fence for Eve who recalled to the serpent that she could not eat or touch it. This method is used by parents as well as rabbis down through the ages. The fence protects the commandment does not negate or nullify, the fence clarifies. So in the idea of building a fence, the commandment says this, but then the rabbi would add to it. So we don't take a chance. And, and for an example, you shall not lie with your father's sister's daughter. That's one of the commandments. In other words, you can't lie with your first cousin. And so that, that was the commandment pulled somewhere out of Leviticus. But then the fence around it is you can't hug, you can't touch, you can't kiss. That's the fence. So to make sure that you'll never violate the actual commandment, the fence takes it one step further to make sure that you could actually never violate the commandment. It helps protect it to make sure that you would never violate it. So all of a sudden, things that started out sort of simple start getting more complicated. And what started out is just the book of Leviticus and... and. Uh, Deuteronomy and those things with the commandments there grew to 613 commandments. And so there was a responsibility to know all of the 613 commandments. And so you can see why the idea of that things started to become burdensome and and the idea of trying to keep up with that and figure it out and not violate it because the penalties were giant. Lots of times it was stoning. So to know these things and stay within the boundaries of these things, there was huge pressure. Well, guess what with Jesus? He did the same thing. (laughs) He built fences. Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. He said, here's the commandment. But I say, again, and he adds too. Matthew 5.27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How many know that's taken it to another level? Can you say amen, somebody? <laughs> Matthew 5.33, I'm going somewhere, so hang in there. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you sh- shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say you shall make no oath at all, either by heaven or by heaven or by earth, for it's the throne of God. Here again. For you've heard it say, the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. Well, last time. I, you have heard, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he goes on to say, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Woo-hoo! How many know that didn't sound like an easy yoke, right? All of a sudden, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, Jesus is building fences, but he takes it to the uttermost to ultimately, at the end of the whole discourse, he says, you need to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. That doesn't help me. Amen? The state of mind that I was looking for help in, that didn't help me. That added to the weight. It added to the burden. And then he goes on to say, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Apostle Paul later put it this way, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's saying, are you burned out on religion? Come to me. I've got a lighter yoke. And then he said, but this is my yoke. If you even look to lust with a woman, you've committed adultery. Here's my yoke. If if you're angry, you've already committed the same as the sin of murder. So everything gets taken to a higher level. And then he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if he would have left us there, we would have been hosed, right? But you know, there's something about the Lord, just like Apostle Paul wrote, there's something about the Lord where he takes you to the highest standard and he pushes the issue to a point where you think to yourself, I can never do that, right? Where it seems impossible. Remember another place the disciples said, because he was talking about how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and they said, well, then who can be saved? Because they were always taught in their training that when somebody was wealthy, it was a sign of God's covenant and his blessing was upon. Them. But Jesus spun that and said, it's really hard for those people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think he actually said it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said, well, who then can be saved? And he said, with God, all things are possible. But he had a manner in his teaching is to put things where it became out of reach and impossible for a carnal, fleshly, intellectually driven human being to fulfill the things that he carried on his life and wanted to impart into the world. So he took you to a place till you came to an end of yourself. And then that's where it began with him. And we saw that even though he said that he came to fulfill the law, there was a time when the women, the, the, these accusers came and said, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. So in his rabbinical teaching of honoring the law, coming to not do away but to fulfill the law, now they're saying, But the law says, and we caught her in the act. Now what are you going to do? Right? Right? If he teaches the law and he's a keeper of the law and he came to fulfill the law, what should he have done? Picked up a stone and been one to to, to be part of the stoning on this woman. But this is what he they said, this testing him, that he might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. (laughs) So when they continued asking, he raised himself up and said, who he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convinced by, convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. He might have wrote it the names of the women they were involved with prior time in their life. We don't know what brought conviction and why the oldest left first all the way down to the youngest. There's, I'm sure, some deep spiritual meaning in all of that stuff. But we know this, that the commandment said she should have been stoned. They caught her in the act. There was multiple witnesses. He should have stoned her if he was here to fulfill the law. But for him, fulfilling the law wasn't fulfilling the letter of the law. It was fulfilling the intent of the law. He knew the heart of God behind the law. He knew why God brought the law first was to help. It's, Paul said it was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. He knew that he was trying to preserve a race of people that would come into an understanding about the nature and the holiness and the morality of God, that he could lead them to a place till they could get to a place in history where he could send his son and redeem the whole human race. He had a whole other plan that was working. And he did, he did hold the standard, but this is what we know about him. Jesus doesn't lower the standards, he lifts the people. Amen? He doesn't change the standard. Didn't change the commandment. He didn't come. The commandment is good. If you can obey all the commandments, you'll have more peace in your life. If you can obey the law of God, the moral law of God, and keep yourself like the Bible talks about keeping, you can avoid a lot of trouble. You can avoid a lot of heartbreak. You can avoid a lot of fragmentation that happens to our soul because of sin. It can actually work for you, but the problem is it becomes overwhelming for us, and the accuser is working at the same time to make sure that never happens. But Jesus doesn't lower standards. He lifts the people. And we see over and over again. And I didn't put all these because it would take too much time. But Jesus never isolated himself from sinners, but he allowed the crowds to push and crush against him. Luke eight forty. Jesus and his disciples became physically tired from ministering among sinners. Mark six thirty. Jesus gave his time to travel where sinners live. Matthew nine thirty five. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. Matthew nine eleven. Jesus received hospitality from sinners. Luke nineteen five through seven. Jesus gave hospitality to sinners, Mark 2, 15. Jesus fed hungry people instead of sending them away to buy food, Mark 6, 30, verses 44, 30 through 44. Jesus touches sinners whose society considered unclean, Matthew 8, Luke 7. Jesus showed his compassion for sinners by healing the sick and raising the dead, Matthew 9. Jesus freed sinners from the terrible control of demons, Matthew 8. Jesus gave freedom to sinners who in bondage, John chapter 8. Jesus invited sinners who were weary and burdened to come to him, Matthew 11. Jesus was visibly moved by sinners' lack of guidance and direction, Matthew 9. Jesus reached out to many different cultures and language groups in the Galilee of the Gentiles, Matthew 4, etc., etc. We see that his heart was continually for people. And even though he didn't change the standard and he said, I came to fulfill the righteousness of the law, and he walked in it with perfection, and he's offering a yoke to you and me, he showed us that there's a way that he walks. When he says, come and learn from me, there's something we can learn from watching him that turns a heavy yoke into a lighter yoke. Because when he offers his yoke, the first thing he says is, come to me all, you who labor. How many know God is inclusive? How many know that the law and the study and the perfection of the law and the the Levitical law of those who were accomplished in that, that actually the result of that, that effort becomes elitist and can become very exclusive. But Jesus is to all. And all who labor and are heavy burdened, and the first verse here he says, I'll give you rest. And I think about that, is that in this idea of being yoked together with him, there's some thought about if you learn to just walk with him and you realize that he's with you and he's next to you, that you can actually lean into him doing the pulling, right? Because in the ox, the heavy ox, what would happen in ox, also the one ox would have to do is fall back by two inches and the weight shifts to the other guy. And then he, they would pull his weight because this one would tire and it would slow. And so there's, there's always in an ox team. The guys are running the ox. The, go, the goal is to keep them as even as possible. But they know that because one will be walking on the good ground and the other is walking on the ground that was just tilled. And it becomes a harder path. And so there's a shifting that will happen back and forth. It's a kind of shift from, from the heavy load to the lighter load. And when you're walking with the Lord, how many know that he would allow you to do that? You can just fall back and he carries the weight. And you're never pulling Jesus, right? He's always the more mature of the team. He's always got more energy, more strength. He's always got more wisdom. He always, he always has the direction. But he says, come to me, take on this yoke if you're heavy burdened. And he says, I'll give you rest. You can, call, you can lean on me to have me pull for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How many know that these things have to be learned? It's a process, walking with God. It doesn't just happen. I know we do an altar call, and we present it, ask Jesus into your life, and I don't think we ever go crazy and say your life will be wonderful and perfect. But we, we know that there's peace that comes. We know for some people that, that that invitation, when they make that invitation, it can be a transformational moment, a transformational event. Some people, it's not like that. It, it gets walked out over a process of time. But this is a learning process. Learning how to walk and to be yoked with him, it a, it's a, takes a time to learn how to walk with him. And I think this is probably the key to the whole thing. When you think about him as a rabbi, him creating a group of followers that was referred to as a household, that the, the disciples that followed Jesus, it wasn't just the 12, it was many more than that. They became his yoke, part of his yoke. That... The relief for them, when he says, learn of me, comes from understanding that he's gentle and lowly in heart versus proud and arrogant and boastful, right? Needing attention, seeking to be honored, seeking to be the recognized rabbi, the recognized Messiah. Matter of fact, he didn't even pick the cream of the crop. He pulled his guys out of the fishing boats, right? Right? tax collector, come on, despised in society, come on, yeah, all the other guys that the other rabbis wouldn't call out, you become part of my company, because I don't have anything to prove, how many know Jesus only did what he was, right, he never had to be anything other than who he was. And he never had to do work above what he saw the father do, and he could walk into that he operated in a rest, though he carried the weight of the world. Not only the the role of being the Messiah to the or to, Messiah to the Jews, but the Savior of the world. He carried that weight. That revelation was in him, and he carried the weight of that. And of course, we saw him unyoked from the disciples and go up to the mountain to pray. There's a time to be unyoked for the sake of prayer and those things, but but. We know that he carried those things, but he carried it in a gentleness and a lowliness of heart. And he tells you and me, if you want to experience an easier yoke, a lighter yoke, and more rest, be lowly. Be gentle. Don't be stirring it up all the time. Don't be picking fights, right? Don't, don't be always having to prove something or, or allow God to heal you to a point where there's a you're not motivated all the time by some sort of an esteem issue where you've got to prove something to somebody. That Rest comes when you're at peace with what you're yoked to. So there's internal things that He teaches you as you walk and you observe Him. And He's gentle. He's not harsh the gentleness about walking with the Lord. thats If we could tap into that and we can pattern that, we can bring more rest and more peace to ourselves. Amen? And he says, and you'll find rest. The first time he says, I'll give you rest, now he says, you'll find rest. Because it's a both and. I think in the learning process that th- with God, there's always that honeymoon period or there's a time where... We get past ourselves and, and we just need a breakthrough. We need God to impart faith to our heart because we're not finding faith. We need him to impart peace into our heart and mind because we're not finding peace. We need something from the outside to touch us and to create something in us that's not presently in us. And he does that. It's, it's his heavenly father thing that he does. When we're, when we're dry and we're missing it, he can do something sovereign where he just touches us. But in the process, he wants us to also find and seek and ask and discover. That you learn to walk with him to where you cultivate rest. You walk with him where you begin to cultivate peace. Where you walk with him and and you're able to uh, find strength from just working in Christian discipline. Christian principles. Walking and just knowing how he is and who He is and what He does, and you're, you're walking at a pace with Him, you're walking at a peace with Him, that you're finding the rest. You're finding the peace. That you're, uh, your discipleship is starting to pay off. That these things are being reproduced in your life, and you can reproduce them in someone else's life because you've learned. Amen? And, and that's the goal, is that we get to a place where as much as, you know, miraculous is awesome, but it isn't the intention of God that we live from miracle to miracle. I know in a charismatic culture of miracles that that seems like a a wet blanket statement but it isn't is that we need to get to a place where we've cultivated these things in our lives so now our faith and energy is believing for someone else's miracle amen Where, where we're positioned so we can minister miracles but we're not relying on a miracle that, that we've, uh, there's things that have been established in our life, that we've entered in with, as Paul talks about, into not just a reaping, but into the law of sowing and reaping, so that, that there's been a, uh, there's a stream or a steadiness of finances in our life around us, so we're not living from just miracle to miracle, although if you're in that place of lack right now and you need a miracle, we'll still believe with you, we'll still pray with you, we'll consider helping you, amen? But, but there's something about walking with Him, and the rest comes because He creates a stability. Amen? Creates an even pace in our life. He creates an idea of an abiding with Him, where these things become lifestyle things, and not just, you know, seasonal or day-to-day. But that's what He's after. Because He wants us to get to a place where His yoke is easy, and His burden is light. You know, the uh, I think about... How many things, this was part of my contemplation, because I was questioning the fact that, there my, that I was at a place where I was experiencing an easy yoke and a light burden. That was what my contention was. This doesn't feel light, and this seems really heavy. And, uh, but the, when that, you get to that place, this is what you always have to ask back. How much am I taking on that is not Him? Right? Right? And and you can't unravel those things all at once. Some of them are commitments that you make. You just can't pick up the phone and say, I'm bailing right now. I feel like this really isn't God anymore. That's flaky Christianity. You you don't just drop people and drop things. You're committed to them because you find yourself overwhelmed. But you just learn how to start backing out of. And you start praying more before you commit the next time. Because what you're looking for with those rhythms of grace amen, where you're not overwhelmed and you're not living frantically, you're not living panically, and anxiety levels aren't super high because you're, you found a rhythm and you feel God's grace there and you feel like you're yoked to him and those things, that's the goal, amen. And if we can get there where the, bu- the burden is, is light and the yoke is easy, I, I really believe that he wants us to target those things because that's his promise, Amen. After the issue of the woman and the the stoning, when he said, you know, you leave the woman caught in adultery, this was the next phrase he said. Jesus spoke to them said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I've read over that several times. When I was rereading that passage, I just caught that. And I, I really believe that idea of being yoked with him He said that you don't walk in darkness, but he gives you the light of life. The light of life. What would the light of life illuminate? Right? The light of life. If I was walking with him, yoked with him, and he said, I'm giving you the light of life. Well, life is what we're after. Amen? We're after. I come that you might have Life and life more abundantly so the light that would direct you to life and more abundantly what would it highlight what would it shine on what would it illuminate for me that would be something that god would bring life and life abundantly into me but he said i would give it to you i believe it would light up love I believe that the light of life would show you and direct you to love because love is the more excellent way. I believe that I believe it's the love of God that's the solution for a lot of those divisions we saw in the flow chart is the love of God. Because the love doesn't, it doesn't take thought, it doesn't keep account, it doesn't argue to defend its own position. That love would yield for the sake of unity versus hold an issue for the sake of being right. And, and one of the things we were going around in the circle and they were asking, well, how come you got involved in unity and this? And I said, well, I, I had a, a, a moment in my life where um, I just had an encounter with God and he posed that question to me. He said, you spent the last half of your life trying to be right. What about trying to become one? And when that hit me, there was... It, it, it just was like, the, it talks about the word is sharp and powerful, and it goes, and it divides joint and marrow, it divides spirit and soul, and it, it came in, it divided spirit and soul. And all of a sudden, I realized the weight that he put on is the weight that Jesus puts on walking in unity. And the only way to get there is actually through walking in love, because we're very diverse. We're very different. We all have favorite scriptures. Amen. There's things that you you know that you have are you're more successful in, and so you're going to highlight. There's things I'm more successful in, I'm going to highlight because we're looking for validation, and and in that what happens is then we begin to, to we begin to take sides and we begin to divide and we begin to you know separate and and he's not into any of that, but love will keep us unified. Love will say it, that doesn't matter that much, amen. Love will say that for the cause of Jesus, because when he appeared to Apostle or Saul before he was Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say the church. His identity, the whole church, everybody on that flowchart that's actually joined to the Lord are one spirit. They're all in Jesus. And so to say that I prefer my doctrine because I prefer this and I think this is more important than that and And I created my faction. It's all in Jesus. And for me to think that he doesn't feel that, I I can't think that way anymore. I think he feels all of that. Wow.
1: It's
0: the love walk. The light of life will lead you to the love of God. And walking in the love of God. Bring security to who you are. It'll bring validation to who you are. It'll you'll give you that legitimacy as a son and a daughter that you don't have to walk under somebody else's pressure. Amen. I want to pray into that right now. Jesus, I thank you for the light of life. That we're not walking in darkness. I know some of us would say, well, walking in darkness, he was directing that towards a woman caught in adultery. I don't know. I think he was directing it to the elders that were walking in judgment. I thank you, Lord. You'd release your light that you'd help us see the world through a new lens. You'd help us see sinners and people around us through a new lens. That you'd show us life through your eyes. Because I know being yoked to you that my values changed. That I started seeing things more from an eternal perspective. That, That all of this is momentary light affliction. That as scripture says, my life's but a vapor. But everything that I do and how I live, it all equates into an eternal richness, into a, a reward of, at the time of resurrection, that all those things that you said are true, that you promised, that how we live out these 80 years or whatever we're given, it all determines eternal things. And I learned that from being yoked to you. I learned that from watching you because that's how you lived, that's how you talked, that's how you thought. And I just pray that we would learn how to walk with you and reevaluate life and reevaluate priorities because of an eternal consciousness that you put in us. That we would value people like you value people. Everybody matters. Everybody has a story. And even the proud and the arrogant, they have very strong walls and very strong gates. I pray that in the days to come, you give us a wisdom and a love. You put favor on our life. And you help us touch people in every place in life. The up and outers, the down and outers. Help us connect that we can introduce them to you. I pray if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, that Josiah will have a great invitation for you. <laughs> Come on, Josiah.
1: Amen. Well, we, don't, we never want to leave a service without the opportunity for somebody to come and take you know I I love how Jesus opens up that little invitation he says all you who are weary and heavy laden come because he understands that life isn't always easy that sometimes things happen to us or we've done things and they've placed a burden on us but Jesus is offering to come and to walk with us, that we don't have to walk alone. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today, and you realize the burden that you've been carrying is too much for you, you want to give that burden to Jesus. You want to begin to walk with him, not under your own strength or your own power, but by the grace that he gives. Because he never calls us to anything that he hasn't already given us strength to walk through. So if that's you here today and you'd like to come and join Jesus to walk with him, if you just want to raise your hand, we just want to know who we're praying with and praying for. Let's all say this together. Jesus, I hear your invitation and I want to follow you. I'm tired of going my own way, trying to make it on my own. I'm tired. Give me strength. I give you my life, I give you my burdens and I take up your yoke. Forgive me where my way has hurt other people, hurt myself, and hurt your world. I want to follow you. Give me grace. Amen. Amen. Well, if you prayed that for the first time or the hundredth time, We believe you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the burden of this world and into the kingdom of his glorious grace. Amen.